I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. I did a little due diligence on you and that, what a great history. Good, great, great stuff. And uh, so let's, let's start there. Uh, you know what, uh, Robbie and I are blessed to be able to, to, to grab great people that be on our, on our episodes of uh, Ditch Digger CEO. And we love uh, rags to riches stories, right? We love stories of people that, that had tough times and got through and, and, and created some success uh, in, in their, uh, you know, in, in their vision, what success is to, totally different for all of us, right? But when we look at uh, many of our stories are stories of people that have, have had tough times and gotten through them. Um, and, and Michael Brody, uh, you, you, uh, you're a great story. So tell me, tell, introduce yourself, Michael, and, and do you go by Michael Brody? Do you go by Michael Brody White? What do you do? Uh, I go by Michael Brody White or Mike Brody White for those that know me well. And I am a, let's see, I am a recovering drug addict with over 17 years clean. And I'm also a three-time CEO, a speaker, and author, and entrepreneur. Awesome. And, and so uh, what... What uh, when we when we look at uh, you, Michael? You, you consider yourself a, a startup guy, entrepreneur. When you when you think about uh, who you are, who you want to be, uh, you know, you know, business builder, CEO. Tell us about that. Sure. So in the in my past, uh, I spent eight years in corporate America as a leader, uh, working the corporate ladder at a Fortune 50 company, and I left that job and I founded a company with my partner Tyler. And so we built that company from zero to an Inc. 500 um, level of growth. And we sold to a publicly traded company in 2015. And then I went and I led a nonprofit for three years where we helped 2,000 entrepreneurs a year create or grow a business. And now I'm taking everything I learned as a recovering addict and as a leader and teaching other people how to lead themselves by living uh, in what I call rigorous authenticity. So I don't really, you said, who, what do I want to be? I want to be exactly what I am right now. And that is someone that has the great fortune of having the, the experiences of being in corporate America, being an early stage to mid-stage entrepreneur, um, being a nonprofit leader, and also being a recovering drug addict. Awesome. That's, that's, uh, 
that's a great uh, that's great stuff to be. I mean, anytime you can you can build things, uh, you know, create opportunity, create value, enterprise value, and the backside all that you can participate in, in nonprofits and, and things that uh, are, are you know totally giving. Uh, and, I, and I believe entrepreneurship itself is giving. If you don't serve people at the, at the highest level in the you know in a world class fashion, you're probably not going to be that successful in entrepreneur, in my opinion. So, certain you know, serving others is a natural thing for you, as it is to myself and many of our friends. And uh, I think that's something that I, I want to always get out there, right? I want want people to understand entrepreneurship isn't about feeding yourself. And sure, initially, it kind of is probably right. But yeah. but overall, as you really understand how to scale and, and the benefits of scaling great things. Man, you're serving a lot of people, not just your customers, not just your teammates, but but vendors and everything else, right? So so that that naturally falls right into okay, now what nonprofit stuff can I get into and help out with, right? That you've you've done and, and so many entrepreneurs do. Uh, so that's that's another part we we got to talk about that because we have some very very uh, aligned thoughts there. I think when I looked at your history and the stuff you've been through. Um, but man, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what we can do as, as scaling entrepreneurs to scale great nonprofits is, is, is really cool as well. Right. Nonprofit life is harder than entrepreneur life, man. It is. It is. And, and I, I mean, that's why, I mean, I, I love, I love the entrepreneurial life where we can, we can take uh, in, in our case, you know, take and grow a, a foundation that you, know, you, you funnel percentage of your profits to. And, and that foundation, which is a non, nonprofit, grows because you have the, the profit, the entrepreneurial scaling profitable business that feeds it, right? And, and I, I mean, I, that, that's actually way easier to grow, isn't it? When you have, a, we have an engine that, that uh, serves, you know, in a, in, a, in a big way and scales in a big way, and you can funnel a percentage of those profits to a foundation that, that 100% is, uh, you know, nobody paid and there's, 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 no, there, there's no overhead. Um, is everybody volunteers within our organizations and, and others? So again, I, I think that uh, that's that's really fun and that's kind of maybe more scalable if you have a, a product and a business that can scale and that foundation you can grow along with it. It's pretty e- much easier, I should, should say, as long as that business is solid compared to a, a nonprofit where you're raising money on a constant basis and, and spending money on a constant basis, right? Yep. Um, it's it's tough to make it as sustainable as as you like, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I was very humbled by my experience. Uh, I mean, it was incredibly awesome uh, and to be able to make the impact. And I learned a lot, but it's 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 definitely a different oh, animal. I, I, next time, I'll go the foundation route. Well, I want to get into that. I'll spend a little time on that in a minute, but let, let's start with uh, you know, Michael. Uh, you know, your upbringing in California. You know, what what type of kid were you? What type of parents do you have? What what gave you uh, this mindset of entre- entrepreneurship that you eventually uh, dove into and, and took risk in? Um, and, and uh, let's, let's start there and kind of go forward. So growing up in California, uh, I just had like an average childhood, middle class. Uh, my parents were both, um, um, they were both professors. My dad was also a lawyer by trade. And, um, my grandfather was an entrepreneur though. He was a classic American, um, success story. Came over on the boat when he was one from overseas. Um, his family was so poor that he, he was the youngest of like, I don't know, like 13, and wow. in eighth grade, he, he had to quit school to sell newspapers and he'd use them to like cover up the holes in his shoes up in the Northeast. And so the typical story where you've got somebody that's in these really challenging circumstances and then um, gets a job, uh, it's a crazy, I won't tell the whole story, but gets a crazy opportunity to, at the age of 18, become a sales leader 
at a manufacturing company, raises the money to buy out the owner, and then turns that into a company that he builds. And one of the uh, great claims to fame from the company that he built, which I hate saying because I get made fun of mercilessly, is he, uh, his company invented the spork. <laughs> and, um, and he did the classic entrepreneur thing where he was, uh, he was uh, bidding on uh, military ration kits and they needed space. And so they had a spoon, a fork, and a knife. And he's like, we'll do two. And he didn't know how they would do it. So he's like, won the contract. And he goes back to his team. He's like, okay, how are we going to actually do that? And they came up with a spork. So my grandfather was a great awesome. entrepreneur. Um, unfortunately, he held on too long. And, he, and, he, and he, uh, he built an empire. And then he completely lost the empire because he didn't know how to quit. Um, and so my parents were not entrepreneurial. But I remember seeing just what he had built. And I'd always wanted the ability to make an impact in the world. And I wanted as little friction between me and that impact as possible. And so when I was like five or six, I remember I was actually listening to like one of your last podcasts. And I was talking about how he um, exploited his sister for child labor. Uh, <laughs> where like it was like 25 cents a day. And for me, um, what happened was at the age of like five or six, my parents got me all these like school supplies. And I started realizing I had all these assets. I didn't know what the word asset meant, of course, but I had all these assets that I could leverage. And I tried to rent them to my sister, but then she just cut out the middleman and went straight to my parents and asked for the same supplies. <laughs> she got them. My market evaporated and my first business was folded right when it started. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, so, so that, that, that was my first experience with entrepreneurship. I didn't get into entrepreneurship until much later in my life. But you, but you kind of, you could, you could, you could uh, understand you, you had a thirst back at a young age where, you know, you, you saw your grandpa and what he did. Um, saw saw him create a value proposition and a cool, uh, I, I think it's a pretty cool invention. Eh? That's really cool. That's really neat. Um, and then, and uh, you know, you, you saw that you saw a vision of success that, that, that he, he displayed that you want, you know, wanted. And, and something you said is really important, right? Making an impact. We've, you know, one of my friends that was on our show early, you, you can listen to his, uh, Bijou. But Bijou uh, was one of, the, one of the founders of Redbox when it was Get a Movie at, the, at first. And Bijou, you know, you talk about, uh, yeah, what's your, you know, what are your core values? What, you know, what's your mission statement? And he goes back, back to, uh, yeah, my, my, my uh, value, values are to make an impact. Everyone in our, in our company, um, that's all we think about is how do we make an impact every day? You know, and, and, he, and he'll, you know, talk about, uh, vision statement, whatever else, it's to make an impact. That's what we, our goal is to make an impact in the world of uh, fintech right now, right? And, uh, and, they're, and they're exploding, um, they're, they're exploding and growing a, uh, a company that has a valuation of, uh, you know, six or 700 million now tracking to a billion dollars all in like four, year, four or five years. Um, but anyway, bottom line though, is that's all he thinks about every day is impact. So you said a, a really, uh, uh, you know, really, really something that uh, a few people that I know talk about a lot. And boy, if you can just think about that on a consistent basis, it makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? Today, did yes. I make an impact to my family, to my, to my friends, to my, my investors, my customers, right? And if you can think that way every day, you're going you're, you're gonna to be constantly focused on, on whatever you want to be focused on probably. So that's cool. Um, when, I, when we look at your, when you look at your, uh, your, your experience in leading in, in a, in a large business, uh, what was that like? And how did, how did that get you focused to want to be on your own and in, in your, in, in your business? Uh, uh, st is it stereo cycle? Uh, my business was in quicker and we sold the stereo cycle. Oh, um, stereo cycle is you sold too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was a very interesting sale. Uh, but yeah. 
So yeah, if you can go, yeah, start there. Start, so start with uh, your experience. The in the, experience. In the, so for me, you know, uh, so I'm from California, but uh, thanks to my recovery, um, I ended up in Nashville, Tennessee. And so Dell computer had a, their second headquarters was here in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was growing. And I needed a job um, coming out of treatment and I got a job at uh, the kiosk in the mall back when people were uh, like, when you bought a, a Dell, people said, dude, you're getting a Dell. So like picture a guy from California with long hair, hoop earrings, flip flops, like long beard saying, dude, you're getting a Dell. Like I sold a lot of computers. Like I was a great fit in Nashville. They didn't know what to do with me. Um, and so I parlayed that experience going into the, um, the actual corporate headquarters because I was just out in a mall, but some guy took notice of me, brought me into the headquarters and I stuck out like a sore thumb and I worked my way up through the, the corporate ladder and I say I stuck out like a sore thumb and it's not because I was from California and I had the long hair and the hoop earrings and all that kind of stuff. It was because I practiced principles that I learned in recovery that most of the people around me were not. I knew how to do things that, that recovering addicts are trained to do to survive that most of the people around me were incapable of. For example, sharing a weakness. You know, there's an incredibly humbling effect when you as a drug addict walk into a room full of people that are admitted drug addicts and you say, I'm Mike, I'm a drug addict. And then you ask a bunch of strangers for help that are admitted drug addicts. And then you get a sponsor and you start working the steps and you start getting recovery and you go, wow, sharing that weakness changed my life. And then you go into the corporate world and everybody's lying and hiding just like a drug addict in active addiction, except they're not pursuing the next high, they're pursuing the next promotion, the next sale. And so like a really classic example of this, and actually I did this, so it's like I'm a hypocrite, but I once wasted 22 hours over a weekend trying to figure out how to use Microsoft Excel pivot tables when I could have spent 10 minutes asking my manager, how do I do a pivot table in Microsoft Excel? But I was scared that I would look stupid, that I would look weak, that they wouldn't want to invest in me and all that kind of stuff. And so when I was in that corporate environment, all these people around me were essentially hiding their true selves or what I call wearing a mask, which we're in a pandemic and all that stuff. I don't mean physical mask. I mean the mask that leaders have been wearing for centuries. And I aggressively shared my weaknesses. I said no to things. I had the difficult conversations. And with, when the boss's boss was in the room, I shared my unique perspective. And so that's what got me promoted. And that's what turned my mentors into the people that reported to me. And it was a little lonely because I was operating by a different code. But luckily, I had all the people that are in recovery to go to, um, to share, uh, this different way of living in this different way of working. But when I got into recovery, they told me that you had to practice these principles and all your, all your affairs. And I took that really seriously. So it ended up being, um, an advantage for me long-term, but it was a really scary way to practice in that environment. Wow. I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I agree. You know, I, I didn't, uh, have the confidence for probably, yeah, probably 20 years to tell my story of where, who I was, where I came from to, to, to customers, to, uh, you know, friends and business, uh, network people I'd networked in part partnerships with, uh, in my businesses as we grew up until I got into the group YPO young presence organization. Yep. I got to it. I think I was like 42, 41 or 42. I got in and business was about 20 million in sales at that point. And, uh, and I, I and I wasn't telling my story very much there as I met more and more CEOs of companies that are, you know, 15 or 20 million on the low end to multi-billion dollar company leaders. And so I, I, I just, I, I would tell them high level stuff about myself and, 
And then if they asked about education, hey, I didn't, you know, didn't go to, I'd be honest with them, right? But I wouldn't really go into who I really was. And when I say really was, right? Just going to, you know, the, painting a picture of who I was uh, while they're while they're going through their college education and stuff. Hey, I, you know, don't have a college education. I barely made it through high school. My story now, I tell exactly the way, the way it was. And it's a lot of fun telling it. But back then, I, I told it to a forum I had and, and the forum of CEOs I was in. And, and I told them, hey, I don't really tell a story to everybody because it's kind of embarrassing. But, uh, you know, here's who I, who I was, where I've come from. And, and my friends would say, you're crazy, dude. That freaking story separates you from everybody else in this group. You know, it's, 100%. You know, all, of us have, all of us have MBAs. Most, most of us have, uh, you know, lived, lived some pretty good lives as young people. And, you're, you know, you've, you've had a, kind of a hillbilly upbringing. That's kind of cool, right? So eventually I'd say, really? It's cool? Eventually I said, when people would ask me who I was, it'd be really easy to go deep and be transparent. And today it's super easy, right? Today, after you've had a little bit of success and, 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 you're, and you're blessed with uh, uh, security of, you know, financial security and all that kind of stuff, who cares, right? If people don't like you the way you are, then that's okay. You, know, you don't need to, everybody doesn't need to love you. And, and if they do, that's, that's even better, right? And in the same respect, I think that if, when people understand where you came from, no matter where that is, when they see the, the, the transparency and the authenticity that you talk about so much, I mean, I believe they, they get closer to you, right? When you really yes. give them all the give them all the dirt, man. I mean, tell them tell them the tough times you had and what you learned from the tough times, and maybe what you haven't learned, and you're going to get help, maybe, or you can help somebody, right? So I I, I love your your uh, how you talk about that, and, and let's let's go there. How, how did you use that further? Let's say what what are some when you got to be a leader, and and uh, you'd share how would you share with people that that work for you that that they're reported to you because that's kind of a tougher thing for for leaders sometimes to to uh, really be authentic authentic with people that report to them because very often you want that mask of what leadership should look like right yep. this perfect specimen of a leader should look like this and instead yes. you, you may have told them you may have explained a little different so tell us about that. So I think probably the best story to illustrate this is um, after I left Dell and I co-founded in Quicker, um, we, so our mission was to reinvent access to healthcare by letting patients digitally self-schedule an appointment to a healthcare provider from a mobile device, device in 30 seconds or less. Before that, no one could digitally schedule a healthcare appointment, which was so stupid because I could schedule <laughs> an appointment for my cat, my car, and my hair, but I couldn't schedule an appointment for like the most important thing, my health. And so anyhow, so we, we, we started that company in, in 2009. Um, I left Dell in 2010. And we had a time at, towards the end of 2010 where we got on a national TV, um, Fox and Friends, talking about our platform. And we got all this exposure. And I, I was the CEO, but um, I had an email signature that said I was CEO. But I felt like a little kid wearing a suit. I had no idea what I was doing. I was not actually a CEO. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to manage all this exposure. And I'm fairly certain that if I don't manage this correctly, I will ruin the company. And so everything in my head said, don't let your team know that you're a fraud. Don't let them know that you don't know how to be a CEO. I had like five employees at the time. We were working out of like the equivalent of a garage. And yet at the same time, what I had learned in 12 step recovery was the strength is in sharing the weakness because then you lead yourself. And then when you lead yourself, you inspire and show others how to lead themselves. And then that creates automatic leadership. And that's why a 12 step sponsor is the best leader in the world. And so I had these two conflicting narratives. A CEO doesn't share this stuff. 
but a recovering addict does. So I went to my team and I told them, I said, guys, I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm scared I'm going to wreck the company. And instead of leaving, um, they rallied around me. Uh, we identified a nonprofit in town that had just started to help entrepreneurs. They got me an appointment down there and I went down there and instead of posturing like so many entrepreneurs do, um, I was honest about my limitations and I got a mentor. And then what started was essentially almost every week I made a practice of going to my team and declaring what my growth edge was and not just like saying, oh, like this is something I struggled with, but now I'm good or, or this is a problem, but I have the solution. Like, Hey, this is what I suck at. And I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. And I have this saying that, you know, great leadership um, isn't saying I, I, I'm, I'm not a human and great leadership isn't acknowledging your humanity in the past. It's saying I'm in the middle of the shit right now. I have no idea how the story ends, but walk with me and watch what I freaking do. And in doing that, you will see how you can lead yourself. I learned that in recovery. So I did that. And the really cool thing is, is that they still, they trusted me even more. We scaled like crazy because all of the people on my team didn't waste all of those cycles lying and hiding. Mm -hmm. And instead, I was also demonstrating what they're supposed to do with their growth edge. And so we went up against companies. We had 50 employees. We went up against companies with 150 million venture capital and 600 employees. And we waxed them because we didn't have all the internal politics and BS that was happening because I was doing what leaders are not supposed to do theoretically. And, and there were three principles in recovery that taught me how to do that. But like I had to practice those principles every day, not just like one day and not just like tell my team, hey, you should do this. I'd actually live it. And, and living that was a really scary thing. Now I can look back and say it was great, but it was really scary at the time. That's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. That's a great story because I, I, I believe it 100%. And some people will never figure that out. Um, some leaders never figure that out. I know as a young leader, I didn't figure it out. I was a young guy leading people around me that were older than me and then in these small, you know, small business that I, that we were originally. And, uh, and I, and I, I acted like I, I knew more than I did. I, I didn't, uh, didn't let them know the chinks in my armor. Right. And then eventually you realize, well, you're not, you're not, you're not gaining a lot because if they think you know it, they're not challenging you and they're not helping you learn more. Right. And so you're, you're stagnant. So eventually as you think you, you want to scale, boy, you better, you better be transparent, in my opinion, because you know, everybody's going to follow your lead or, or you know, a lot of people follow your lead or, or they'll leave you because they, they know you're an idiot, right? Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that uh, you know, smart, smart business leaders figure it out eventually, and some never have to figure it out almost because they're, they're in an element of a, a politically driven company, many layers, right? And, and, and they don't figure it out but they don't, they probably are, are, are stunted in a huge way because they don't figure it out. Right. They, yeah. they, they get to a level, whatever the level is, a VP level or whatever it might be. And, they, and they're there maybe because of, uh, you know, uh, knowledge of the, of the industry, knowledge of the business, but they don't, they, they don't get promoted to be a real leader because they never, they never figure out that you know, people aren't loving every day. They work for them or with them, I should say. Right. Uh, so uh, it's, it's awesome. And when you talk, when you talk about, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, surrender the outcome. I, I've heard you talk about that as well. You know, you know that, you know, pra you know, practicing, uh, uh, you know, you say rigorous, right? I think rigorous yep. authenticity, which is yep. a little, you know, authenticity is one thing, but rigorous means, well, you better be working to really expose every, every bit of authenticity you can and, and, and never stop. Right. And then you talk about, you know, that you, you know, surrendering, right. Surrendering the outcome. Talk, talk about that. 
So here's the thing, um, and I get this a lot. Uh, we are talking a lot about authenticity in the world right now. And so we want authentic companies, brands, products, leaders, employees, but the truth is we don't have them. Like when was the last time you heard a politician answer a question with, I don't know, like we don't have authenticity in leadership. And the reason that we don't have authenticity widespread in leadership is because we have misdiagnosed the problem. So when September 1st, 2002, I woke up at the Betty Ford Center rehab facility in Rancho Mirage, California, after throwing up blood, being kicked out of my house, having my car repossessed, being fired from my job, all that kind of stuff. That my entire time using drugs, people told me to stop. And here's the thing about an addict. You can tell us to stop until you're blue in the face, but nothing changes until you tell us what to start instead. So when I showed up at the Betty Ford Center, they didn't just say, hey man, you gotta stop using drugs. They gave me a step-by-step -step system, a 12 step by 12 steps exactly, to be able to reproduce the outcome that millions of other recovering addicts were experiencing where I didn't have to figure anything out. It was foolproof. Every business that is successful achieves scale where they create repeatable systems and processes so that you can almost in a foolproof way deliver your value proposition. We do not have that for authentic leadership. We give someone a, you know, like I love Brene Brown, like she's a hero for me, but we give her a book, we give someone a Brene Brown book, or we have them watch a podcast or whatever, and we expect them to be authentic. And then we get completely flabbergasted when they don't. Same thing with an addict. And so the thing is, is that when we, when we talk about leaders in this world, we've misdiagnosed the problem. They are addicted to hiding themselves. They are addicted to doing what I call wearing a mask. 90% of leaders are actively wearing masks at work today. They're addicted. And because we haven't diagnosed the problem appropriately, we keep telling them to stop instead of telling them what to start instead. We've got systems for how to eat healthy, for how to work out, for how to save money, how to stay off your phone when you're around your kid. I've got a, I've got a young uh, daughter and a son on the way and that's hard. We don't have systems for how you reproduce authentic leadership. And so for me, what I had to do in my company and in my ability to scale leaders was take what I had learned in 12-step recovery and use it as a model for how to create a foolproof way to become an authentic leader. And so it came down to those three principles, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, and do uncomfortable work. But they're not just like three principles the way that like I read a Patrick Lencioni book and I get three principles and I get inspired. They work to, by the way, I love Patrick Lencioni and Renee Brown. But, but what they lack is the empathy for the 70% of people that do not have the ability to execute what they write. They, they don't have what you and I have, the willingness to climb over whatever, the discipline or whatever. So they need what an addict that has like a poor education level and a poor socioeconomic condition, mm -hmm. yet they can follow this foolproof method to stop putting dope in their veins. Like they need that foolproof way to execute this stuff. And so yeah. these three principles aren't just principles, they work together as a system. And I can go into like what, how you do that as a system, but I'll stop there because I just realized I was ranting and raving for like- That's awesome, that, that, that's, that's really cool stuff. So think about this, when, you, when we look at uh, you know, successful, successful business builders, and, and uh, you know, we, we, we have uh, 10 companies today with, with leaders, and then we have a golf course with another great leader. So I, mean, really, I don't consider that a company because the golf industry is tough to make money in, but, but we, we've got basically hobby. 11 entities. It's a hobby. <laughs> we have basically 11 entities, and I, and I search hard for great leaders in each one of these businesses, and, and the ones that are the, with the greatest leaders end up to be the, 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 the strongest, fastest scaling uh, businesses with the best culture. 
right? We set them all up with very with the same core values. It might be a variation or two on our core values with one or two companies because my CEO, you know, had, had a passion for something different. But overall, very similar cultures and core values uh, in these in, in these businesses. And then and then uh, you know then it's a matter of you know can the leader align their their uh, uh, you know their their vision with uh, with a strategic strategic operational success, right? Can they can they align those two things to be successful? Um, and and if and if that that leader is has exactly what you're talking about, boy, it makes it a lot easier, right? And and I I have made the mistake of of bringing in or hiring and or or even grooming people that didn't have what we're talking about, right? And yeah. and and our mistake, my mistake, and not you know not really really building it procedures right that say are you this and if not how do we work on you being more like this right um i, I think today most of our leaders have have all, most of this or all this um we're, and we're blessed because over the time over 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 the years we've developed core values that we adhere to that really describe kind of this this type of these type of actions right but but you know you say in another way that's even more impactful and i think it, it's important and we'll, we'll go over this a little more in my own organization hey, uh, you know, here, here's what my, my new buddy Mike says. I want I want you guys to think about this a little more. Make sure you guys look, you know, listen, listen to this episode, right? Um, but uh, but again, I guess when I go back to uh, you know, I, I invest also in other businesses and, and uh, startups and um, you know, uh, early stage and A series startups and things like that. Um, and I look at the leadership at first, right? Of course, you know, who's leading it? What's their experience? Have they been successful in the past? Many of my friends, when they look at this stuff, will say, "What type of success have they had in the past?" Right? Are, 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 if they have, you know, two or three successes, they're they're equivalent to what the, what this investment will look like for success. That's an easy investment for them. Right? For me, I, I say, you know, what kind of hits have they taken in the past, and 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 you know, what what uh, have they have they have they established some grit with their past experience in life? And and so, I mean, I I, I was in, I've been in Israel a couple times now, you know, discovering. Uh, amazing businesses and business minds in Israel. And, and, and these, these, most of these venture capital groups there, they want to find leaders that, that they, that be, that they, they uh, bring in CEOs that have had, had failure in the past that failed in a big way. Right. Uh, whether it's military, it's business, it's family, it's, it's personal, right. They want to find people that have gotten through some greedy times. So I say this, I say, you know, Mike, do you, do you ever look for people and say, gosh, you know, that's somebody I want to bet on because, They've gone through what you've gone through, right? They've been an ad, uh, addict before, and they've gotten through it. Man, uh, that that person got some grit. They know the twelve step system. They, you know, you know. So in other words, I guess I'm saying, is there is there a way that you could uh, you could find uh, Betty Ford uh, survive? You know, people that have, have, have excelled through Betty Ford, and three, four, five, six years later, they're they're leaders, right? Um, yeah. it might be, it might be another place to harvest great talent. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, right? Well, I've actually done some like interviews or, or talks about why recovering addicts are the number one type of talent that you want to hire. Um, and so uh, I, I absolutely love looking for the problem. So like people have experienced failure. The real, that with the reason that's so important is how do they respond to it? Right. That's, that's the, at the end of the day, that's what happens. That's what separates the addict that keeps using until they die from the addict that sits in front of you and in front of a podcast and has recovery and ability to use his recovery for good. And so it, it, it's all about the capacity for, for awareness. How do you create the right level of awareness? And, and that's where there's such a conflict with leadership. Leaders think that they need to pretend that they're superhuman and yet acknowledging their humanity and shaping it and co-creating it and leading it is what actually allows them to be really successful and learn from their mistakes. Sure. Um, and because what you do, when you're investing in a business, what you don't want is a leader that doesn't have the ability 
to be aware enough when they are making a mistake and not learn from it. And, and so the people that I trust are not the people that didn't make mistakes. It's the people that demonstrate the capacity to learn from them. And so like the, the, there's a practical way that I did this, um, that I talk about in my Ted talk. And I think I talk about it in my book. Um, I did in, in a job interview. Um, you know, you always ask someone like, what's your greatest weakness? And they always give you some bullshit answer. Like I care too much or I try too hard or I work too hard or I'm too organized or I'm too perfect or, you know, some manipulation of basically I'm everything that you want. And I just turned a negative into a positive. And so in those interviews, every single person that has ever worked for me, I ask that question and then I lean in and I say, that's a great interview answer. But as a human being on this earth, what is your greatest weakness? Usually that'll startle them because it's not like the normal thing. And they'll, they'll try to offer something more personal, like um, I'm on Facebook too much. And then I'll be like, all right, I'm going to give you one last shot and I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. For me, and this, is, this has been true for a long time now, actually, one of my greatest challenges, my, one of my greatest weaknesses is I sacrifice a tremendous amount to work hard to be successful and I lack the capacity to enjoy it. And what happens is, is that that kills morale for my team and it makes the people that live with me have a negative experience and not happy. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to spin that into a positive. It is my growth edge that I need to work on. So I'm going to ask you for the last time as a human being on this earth, what is your greatest weakness? And if they can't get real with me there, then they can't practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work at my company with my customers and my teammates. So I wouldn't hire them and I would take someone that was a B plus that could answer that question right versus someone that was an A plus. Sure. To yeah. me, that's everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and again, you know, when you, you think about uh, you know, your values and I, and I you know, kind of get where, where you're at with your, your values in, in, a, in a big way, it's when you, when you hire you can find somebody that looks like an A plus uh, when it comes to resume, experience, education, right? But man, if their core values don't align, doesn't matter, right? I mean, doesn't compared matter. to a to a C plus that resume wise that that align perfectly, that that are passionate about those core values, and it's hard to interview for that, but you can, right? You can you can really understand through an interview or maybe second or third interview if that if it's about the position and how how hard you how hard you're working to, to replace the to find that person, but. Um, and if you can find somebody that's they're totally passionate about your industry, uh, your core values, and their their resume is a C C plus with no education, I'll take that person every day over the over the uh, highly educated uh, engineer MBA um, that really doesn't align that that that's a, that believes they're the smartest person in every room they walk into. Right? I don't want that person. And I and I and I've had those people too often in my life. Right? So yeah. so the, the, the nice thing about about age and 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 uh, maturity and business leadership is you really realize what what doesn't work and what works. And you mentioned earlier, you know, politicians. I'm I'm always amazed by politicians that that because so many of them know it all. They never they always have an answer for everything. They don't say they don't, they won't say what they don't know. Um, and 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 their authenticity is very much lacking, right? And and I, I'm thinking, why is that? And just I believe that for sure. Just like leadership and business. If, if, if you're honest and, and, and you say, you're, you, know, you, you tell them where warts are, right? People will see them for a minute and they're like, okay, oh no, I, I remember that wart was there. That's okay. You know, like another wart explodes. Oh, I remember talking about that wart, right? Instead, the, the warts come out later on and then, oh, never told me about that. You know, maybe didn't have to, but boy, it never, it's kind of a shock because didn't think that that, that that wart was there, right? So I guess what I'm saying, when, when we look at leadership and politics and business, I think they're very similar, but yet 
um, politics they get away with 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 this right i think they're they uh they're able to get away with it and and, it, and, it, and it, the result is lousy governance in many many aspects of of uh the the um governance that leads our lives with uh, regulation taxation all the things that we have to think about in survival of business and 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 products and stuff uh, and, and nonprofits, right um so okay so uh, tell me about uh Tell me, tell me about your, your business, uh, how you grew it, what, what was your niche market, and then, and then uh, how, did it, how did it go with the, with the transition and the sale to, to StairCycle? Sure. Um, real quick before I do that, though, uh, I always look at um, the parallels between recovery from addiction and leadership. And so if all leaders are addicted to wearing a mask, politicians are the equivalent of a drug dealer. Ah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. you can see that I love politics. Um, so, um, so building the company. So it, it probably helps to unpack the three principles a little bit, just to understand because that's that's how we built our culture. But um, I'll do that in a second. So basically, you know, we stu- we bootstrapped the whole thing. So we maxed out our credit card, drained our bank account, withdrew from our four hundred one k, all in the height of a recession. Never been there before. Didn't have any investors. Didn't have any connections. No patents. No degrees. Nothing. So like what I'm saying is we shouldn't have done it, um, but we, were, we just didn't know that we shouldn't have done it. Yeah. I always say that Citibank was my investor, but that's just because I paid insane interest on the credit card. Um, they didn't get any equity or any options or anything like that. So um, in 2010, we, we, we really, I left Dell and we really started to grow the business. And so our core customer was uh, hospital systems and our, you know, value, we were B2B to C software as a service company where, um, any patient could go on to a hospital website and schedule an appointment online for a mobile device. And we bootstrapped that business and we got a big break. Um, and I tell a story in my book and in my TED talk that I won't necessarily reproduce here, but like um, we got a huge national system that was really interested in expanding when we only had seven hospitals and we worked um, tirelessly on that, on that expansion. And then um, the night that we got the yes is also the night that our software failed at their hospital. And we are contractually obligated to let them know. And so uh, without going into like all the detail of the story, that was like the first moment in building this business where I had to really put my three principles to the test. And so if we talk about the principles real quick, because we built a whole culture around these and that's why we were successful. Practice rigorous authenticity. You called it out. So authenticity is a check the box. Everybody can talk about the time they kept it real in front of grandma or whatever. Rigorous authenticity is no matter what's at stake, no matter who's in the room. And so when our software failed, um, the patient didn't know, the hospital didn't know, the health system didn't know, but we knew. And my partner told me I shouldn't tell them, but we are contractually obligated to tell them within 24 hours. And so rigorous authenticity is identifying the mask that you want to wear. And there are four masks that all, all professionals wear. And one of them is hiding a weakness. And so I wanted to hide the weakness of my startup that we had had a failure because I was scared of what would happen. So practicing rigorous authenticity is saying, okay, I'm going to be authentic no matter what. But that doesn't actually empower anyone to actually go do it. That's, that's just inspiration. That's great. Who cares? The next one is surrender the outcome because that's why we don't, that's why we sell ourselves out. That's why we wear a mask. That's why we hide weaknesses. That's why we don't show our true selves. That's why we're scared to tell our story because we're scared of what's going to happen if we do. And in this instance, me sharing that my startup had failed and our software had failed, the outcome I was worried about was losing the contract. 
I was scared about not only losing the contract, but it would mean that we would be financially ruined. My employees would be gone. I would be bankrupt. And the mission that we had signed up for would be unfulfilled. And so in, you have to learn how to surrender the outcome. And that's the thing that most leaders don't know how to do. Like we're obsessed with outcomes, but we've all seen like salespeople that are focusing on things that they can't control at the expense of the things that they can. All leaders are doing that. They're wasting a tremendous amount of energy doing that. Drug addicts, when you enter recovery, they beat it into us that we have to learn how to surrender because we can't control our addiction. So mm -hmm. we can't control that we're an addict, but we can control whether we take the steps in recovery. So when this happened, I realized I couldn't control that the problem had happened. I couldn't control what my partner thought. I couldn't control what would happen, but I could control whether I identified the problem and we fixed it. I could control whether I led myself and I could control whether I built a relationship on trust or risked losing everything, and, and, but it stuck to my morals. And so we, I, I was able to surrender the outcome in this instance and say, we're gonna tell them. And what happens is when you practice rigorous authenticity and you identify what you're hiding and you practice surrender the outcome and you learn how to let go of it by transferring your focus from can't control to can control, then uncomfortable work becomes possible. And um, a lot of people will say, Mike, I know how to do uncomfortable work. And I'll be like, no, you don't. You know how to do smart work and hard work. That's physical and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's literally a sensation in your body that stops you from doing something that's good for you. We've all seen someone doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding five to 10 minutes of uncomfortable work. Performance mm -hmm. management and negotiations with customers or investors are two of the best examples I can think of. And so when you identify your mask in this instance, mine was hiding my weakness and you surrender the outcome, what was going to happen to my startup, uncomfortable work becomes clear. And I realized that I could go to some of the people that were my mentors and ask them, how do I tell this customer what's going on and go to a lawyer and say, what, what are the implications of what I do? And by focusing exclusively on what I could control, I identified my uncomfortable work. I told the customer. And then when I told them, they laughed at me because they were like, you only impacted one patient. And I was like, yeah, I thought that was the end of the world. They're like, dude, when we get a call like this, it's because we've, you've impacted 20,000. This makes us trust you. Yeah. And so that was like the moment that I had to put everything on the line, practice these principles like muscle memory. And it didn't kill the company. It built the company. And the most important thing is not the fact that we went from thousands of revenue to millions with that one contract. It's that I got to tell every employee that came to work for me that story to say, we're not just saying that we do this stuff. We live by this stuff. This is actually how we do it. And then we actually have a system for how you can do the same. It's not just, hey, be authentic, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. There are actual steps, just like in the 12-step program that you go through in order to be do that. So like, for example, we'll surrender the outcome. One of the things I teach people is their fear factor. And it's a way to understand that a lot of our fear of outcomes is much bigger than it actually is. You identify your fear factor and you can deflate that fear. And so we take these predictable steps just like an assembly line to get to a place where you execute your authentic action, your uncomfortable work. And so that story became the way that we built the whole freaking company. And so we, we, yeah. we grew, we became an Inc. 500 company, 20,000% growth in less than six years, best place to work awards. And the best part of it is, is that none of us should have been there. None of us should have been successful. Um, but we had the one thing that our competitors did not have, even though we went up against companies with 150 million in venture capital against my credit card, we were more efficient, we were more effective because instead of having seven meetings, we had one because we knew how to have difficult conversations. We knew how to um, share our weaknesses with our customers and each other to grow. 
and we became a far more efficient, effective company. And I think that we took 50 hu human beings and we created a company where the, that was a playground to practice your authentic self and build a muscle that is so hard to execute in this world. You want to build a retention mechanism for talent? Don't give them a free lunch. Give up, make your workplace the arena in which they can bring their true self to work and show them how to make that and weaponize that as a competitive advantage professionally. And then you'd really change their life and you change the world. And that's what we did. And then in 2015, um, we reached our limitations and, and, and how we felt like we could move forward as a, as a partnership and um, as a company. And we started looking for either financing or an exit and an exit came and, um, and we took the exit. Awesome. And, uh, Rob, you got Robbie on the line here. Hey, Robbie, uh, you know, I like, I like having my young leaders and my and friends of mine or business, uh, you know, one, one of our, uh, leaders that have done this, uh, heads up our, a nonprofit. We have much maybe like the one that you were part of called true mentors where I, I've got, uh, you know, 40, 50 of my friends that are, uh, you know, CEOs and leaders of business have done deals like you and, and I have done and, and, and run businesses today or maybe are not. They're mentors to young people that want to be leaders. And it's, a, you know, very inexpensive or, you know, it's very expensive because it's funded by myself and, and a few of these friends of mine. Um, but, but we're making a difference in the lives of young leaders that want to be big, you know, larger leaders or entrepreneurs. So, so Quentin was on, it was, has been on our, our, our episodes and asking great questions, a younger mind and a, and a different paradigm than myself. And we've got Robbie on here as, as well, Mike. And Robbie is a young, uh, young, on executive track. Uh, uh, he's got a mind that's uh, never stops and he's right in the middle of, right, right in the middle of our culture. So I'm going to ask Robbie, Robbie, what are we doing, dude, to, uh, to, to create this, to, to, to make sure our culture is iron, ironclad when it comes to authenticity and, people be, you know, being able to be their own true self in, in the Rayvine group of companies? Yeah, well, I suppose I could answer that question with multiple different layers, but I have first a question and then second, I'll have an answer to your question. Uh, and the first question for you, Michael, is uh, prior to joining Gary's company's first site, now the Rayvine group, uh, I worked at LinkedIn for four years. And the last point you made, which was bring your whole self to work, was what we actually lived and breathed at LinkedIn every single day. And there are a few different ways that we put that into practice. And one that comes most top of mind was through in-days. So one Friday every month, we would have an in-day, which was a self-reflection day that uh, is really aligned with our cultural tenets. And so the purpose of it was for you to go volunteer or maybe even just stay home, read a book, do something to bring your mind back to homeostasis and, and ultimately uh, make better decisions moving forward for yourself as well as for uh, whatever's going on within your, your work at the time. Um, so I guess my question to you is recognizing that there's so many companies that have been ex in, a, in existence for maybe 20, 30 years, or in Gary's case, close to 40 now, uh, there's a deeply, deeply embedded sense of culture and sometimes internal politics. And so I, I know you mentioned that you have a step-by-step -step system to uh, ultimately run with it. But I think first is, like you mentioned, accepting that there's a problem, putting together a hypothesis behind that problem, and then experimenting how to solve the problem. Uh, so I guess from your experience so far, what would that experiment be? Is it a, a boardroom meeting with the leadership team? And then once you've accepted that you want to make change, uh, how do you implement that? 
Um, so that's a great question. So, uh, and one quick aside, I see that you have a Green Bay Packers uh, thing in the background. My um, 49er fan heart has a lot of pain when I see that because the Packers <laughs> have given us a lot of problems. Uh, but my number two at in quicker was from Wisconsin and a hardcore Packers fan. And he was a kicker on the University of Wisconsin team. And so he was, uh, he and I would celebrate every year and go watch Packers and Irish games together. Anyhow, yeah, all right. So got our number lately, that's for sure. Well, that's true. That's true. But long term, you guys own us. So, um, so here's the deal. So, th- so I actually do this just like drug addiction. So we do um, a mask intervention, mask rehab, and then a mask <laughs> reprogram. Just like a drug. Just like I had an intervention, I went to rehab, and then I joined a twelve step program. So, um, for anyone listening right now, so I'll do the plug. You can go to whatsmymask.com. Um, just whatsmymask.com. And what we have created is a mask assessment that we have administered to now over 1,500 leaders um, from companies like Google and Dell and Global Payments to startups to nonprofits, um, CEOs to frontline employees, entrepreneurs. Um, and what it does is in five minutes, you can identify which of the four masks is holding you back. Um, and there are four masks. So saying yes when you could say no, hiding a weakness, avoiding difficult conversations, and holding back your unique perspective. We started with a hypothesis that there were 50 or more masks, but as we started to administer this assessment, we started to look at the trends and we were able to eventually boil it down to these four masks. And 90% of leaders are wearing these masks and they're costing them 500 hours a year. And so people go, well, is that really true? Like, how, you know, that just sounds like talk. So the first step is the intervention is like when I go do a keynote, um, or I do an, or I'm doing a podcast here or whatever. I call that the intervention. That's, Hey, there's a problem and it's mask addiction and it's costing you 500 hours a year. And that's based off of the data that we get from this assessment. And so, cause in order to address a problem, you have to first accept that, that you have one. And then the next thing is you have to go through mask rehab. And so that is a process that we take people through where we help them identify where in their life, both personally and professionally, they're wearing masks. Um, and then we have them ident- go through a specific process that's similar to what I went through in 12-step recovery to identify. Um, so in 12-step recovery, there's this thing called a four-step inventory. It's called a searching fearless moral inventory. And essentially, we do the equivalent for people when they want to be a more authentic leader, where we have a step-by-step process where they are able to identify who they wear masks with and what it costs them, both professionally, personally, in terms of time and in terms of non-time, could be financial. Um, and then we have them work, go through these three principles where they, t- they pick the manifestation of that mask in their life. So for example, um, I had somebody that was uh, working at a financial institution. She had 22 direct reports, middle of the pandemic. She's trying to do all the triple P loans. And she's saying yes to things that she could say no to. And she's killing her. And she's working from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night. So what we do is we, we illuminate what all the costs are. So now she's in mask rehab and then we teach her how to work the mastery program. And that allows her to go through these steps. Um, there's, there's about 12 of them when you apply these three principles synergy. Um, and what they, what it results in is, um, a mask free action card. And this is mine right here. And it's a simple five by seven card. And literally all it does. So I'll actually read you what mine is right now. So I've been saying yes, when I could say no. And it says what I can't control is B2B. PR and networking FOMO. I have FOMO around all these different opportunities that are coming my way, but I can control if I lead myself and focus on the mask free 
members that are actually in my program and coaching them. And so then my daily reflections. So the job, when you create an action card, you go through mastery rehab and you start working the mastery program. You read this card one minute a day. It's actually modeled off of a 10 step inventory in the 12 step program, but you read this card one minute a day and that creates automatic awareness. And suddenly you start to see where for me, I'm chasing B2B PR and networking FOMO. And by reading this every day, it creates that awareness. And so everybody in my, on my team and in my program has this card somewhere where they, they look anyhow. So like I always read before I go to sleep. So it's my bookmark. Some people, they brush their teeth. I'm not saying I don't brush my teeth, but I don't read when I'm brushing my teeth. So for some people, it's like on their computer monitor or whatever, but they use their mass reaction plan, action card and they read it. And they start to see all the times that they're doing whatever that mask is, saying yes when you could say no, hiding weakness, avoiding difficult conversations. And then at the end of 28 days, they meet with their mask-free sponsor. So I'm literally building the exact same model. So we have the mask-free action cards, which is equivalent to the 12 steps, mask-free sponsor, and mask-free society meetings where people are able to share where they're doing this. And so if you wanted to have somebody like be able to actually become a mask-free leader, they would have their intervention, take the assessment, what's my mask.com. They would uh, go to mask rehab where they go through applying these three principles into an action card. And then they would join the mask free program where they work with a sponsor and they get to share their progress in a society of other people that are applying these three principles. And then for that woman that I, I talked about, those working from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., by the end of that 28 day period, she was stopping work at six and she was saving 60 hours a month. Um, I had another person that was scared to start an online event. And so her mask was, she was holding back her unique perspective. She went to mask rehab, started working the mastery program. And then she started an online event. She's had 1500 attendees attend. Um, and it just becomes, I'm obsessed with taking things that are touchy feely, fuzzy, new agey, self-helpy and distilling them down into concrete systems that have predictable outcomes that don't require anything unique about you to make them successful. And so like that, that's a long answer, but like that's me trying to distill down what we do. Into My, a, Michael, talk, talk about making arena. impact. That's, a, that's, that's a amazing impact, right? When, you, when you're able to, do it, to shave off 500 or 800 hours or 1,000 hours in the case of that person right there, 960 hours if it's, if it's that many per, per month. All right, so when, when, you, when you look at that, that, the percentage of savings and time, and, and you're probably going to be delegating to people that love the responsibility to, to, be, able to, to, to be able to do something more with oh, their yeah. job. Right? And Her I direct report started thriving. Exactly, exactly. So it's more delegating, understanding your strengths and weaknesses, and, and, and you know, staying within your strengths for most of the work you're doing, probably, right? It's, it's, you got to get off in a couple minutes, right? You, you only got a couple minutes because I think you got, um, you're going to be done. How much, I'm, what time I can keep you got? going, but if you guys need to stop, that's okay. No, we don't need to stop. We, we want to keep going. You got too much. You got too much great stuff here, dude. So no, I can keep going. Squeeze, I had an I had an appointment and it canceled. We got to squeeze more out of this orange here, okay? Uh, <laughs> so, so I, I, when I when I think about uh, when, I, when I think about what you're doing, is, is this a nonprofit or for profit? This this uh, this whole process, the what's what's my mask.com? I mean, is this a for profit business? <laughs> so you're you. You're asking that question. I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm like, man, I wish I had talked to you earlier because I was thinking about how I could have done this. So after running a nonprofit, I was like, screw that, man. I don't want that. And so I organized it um, legally as a for-profit, but wrote an operating agreement that holds me accountable to treating it like a nonprofit to some extent. 
Um, but I still am thinking about how I can create the right structure to make it so that it's not reliant on my personality making the right decisions. But right now it's for profit. But what I would say is all of the revenue that goes to this program just goes to supporting the growth of the program. And I haven't <laughs> taken a salary for, I haven't taken any income from this for three years and I've invested um, close to 25% of my net worth into building this and I don't expect to take anything out of it other than maybe one day I'm covering like my personal expenses related to it but it's 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 a purpose business not a profit business but the structure I couldn't if I could have done it differently I probably would have tried to make there be a for-profit arm with the foundation piece and so I want to look at that because I still think we're young enough where I can think about how I do that yeah it's still small still young enough and and boy I tell you I I think that it's you gotta you've got to a value proposition that's incredible for, for businesses all over the world. And, and, and knowing that, I mean, I, I think a value proposition deserves to be a profit business. And man, you can make, you can, you can cre- create a crazy annuity of, of, uh, of investment in, in the nonprofit side of the business, right? Or whatever that is, because it's uh, it sounds like an awesome concept that every business could use in my opinion. And uh, I think uh, my buddy Robbie agrees. He's, he's definitely a, you know, he's definitely an up and coming leader that understands how touchy fuzzy things have to be, you know, figured out in a data, in a data driven world, right? How do you, how do you take the touchy feely stuff that people want, people often live in with, with no data to understand if it, if it makes sense or if it's a, if it's a value to the growth of the business compared to take the touchy feely stuff like you're saying and really, really build, build the data that says, Hey, yeah, it's important. Now let's make sure we have processes to, to, to build by it, right? That's what you're yep. doing. That's, that's incredible value. I, 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 and I, uh, Robbie, I'll, I'll go back to you and, uh, and that question I had to you. Are we doing any of this stuff? I know our, our, our core values say a lot of this, but in my opinion, I'm sure we've, we've got a lot of work to do to, to improve on it ourselves. But Robbie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, we're working on two things right now. Uh, one in which is an idea that I actually had brought from LinkedIn. So they had a program called Dibs, which is diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And so the idea behind that is obviously from a recruiting and HR standpoint, making sure that we're hiring from a diverse background. But then once they're actually onboarded, making sure that everyone has a sense of belonging. And I don't think that you can fulfill a sense of belonging without bringing your whole self to work and being in an authentic environment for them to be in. Uh, and then the second is uh, we signed up for a tool called Tiny Pulse, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Yep. Yep. Uh, which is the ability to take uh, the voice of our entire employee base, provide feedback to the business from both a personal standpoint as well as like an operational standpoint. And then we can turn that uh, feedback into hopefully action uh, through that process. So that was actually going to be my next question uh, to you, Michael, was uh, have you guys considered partnerships with any companies like a 15.5 or a, a Tiny Pulse? And how they can take oh. those insights and then align with your concrete 12-step action plan and, and really run that out to, to market together. Uh, a, I just realized um, that I answered your question with like a 10-minute diatribe last time. So I won't do that this time. Um, <laughs> second, uh, I think that's a great question. And I, um, so we're still trying to understand what are the most effective partnerships for us. One that is pretty clear that has just come from my background, and I'm sure that you guys are familiar with Vern Harnish and the Rockefeller Habits. So um, I'm a member of, I'm, of the, I'm a, I'm a little brother to you in, in the fact that I'm a member of EO. 
Um, and, and so one of the things I, I use the Rockefeller habits in, in both of those uh, businesses that I ran, the nonprofit and my startup. <laughs> and so part of the Rockefeller habits is having a healthy aligned team. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're partnering with um, coaches that, that teach the Rockefeller habits to companies. And we're, and what we do is to have a healthy and aligned team, typically they're not having difficult conversations or they're not sharing weaknesses or they're not saying no, or people's unique perspective isn't being valued. So what we do is we come in and as they look to improve in having a healthy and aligned team, we assess the team to say, what is the company mask that we are all wearing that is holding us back from being really effective here? We use our assessment because you can get an authenticity percentage, not just which mask is holding you back. And then what we do is we create an act, the equivalent of what I shared with you, an action card for everybody on the team on that mask. So practically speaking, what that means is at the beginning of a quarterly offsite, we, they identify which mask is holding them back. We go through the assessment as a team. And so a lot of times it's avoiding difficult conversations. And then what we do is we create an action card that's avoiding difficult conversations. And there's one action for them as it relates to their contribution to the business. And then one action, one piece of uncomfortable work for them personally. And their job is literally just to read the card. And then they are able in um, whatever tracking tool or KPI management tool that they use, like Align, um, they're able to update because uncomfortable work is typically like, for example, collect no's, collect how many difficult conversations you had this quarter. And they can update that so that way this work becomes, they read this card one minute a day, it aligns back to their personal life because they're building the mastery skill in their personal life, but it's also aligning back to the company. And it makes a lot of sense for companies that are using the Rockefeller habits simply because I understand how the Rockefeller habits work and I, and I made this type of stuff work together previously. That being said, I see a lot of opportunity, but that's the first place that I started when it came to partnerships because the combination of the assessment the card and how it links to other things and makes things quantifiable is a really good synergy for management systems or efforts to keep companies and cultures healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that alignment probably is almost easier than to, to implement as opposed to a, a digital landscape. Uh, if it's an in-person consultation, I got to imagine it's, uh, it's a lot more aligned with you guys too. Uh, your conversations are definitely deep down and emotional. So my so, job. Hey, Robbie. Hey Robbie, are we, uh, we need we need to think about uh, adding this to our 360. So we're we're going to be practicing, right? I don't know if you guys. I'm sure you guys have done something with that as well, Michael. Mike, as far as uh, I mean, I, I can see a 360 on uh, you know what's what's my mass 360, and 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 everybody around that leader, that uh, manager, leader, whatever, is assessing their their, their mask, right? You know, the, 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 the teammates around them, and 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 those that report to that person think there's a that 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 uh, leader still has a mask right I mean could be interesting to see what you get out of that it's uh so I just did a, a speaking engagement for a company yesterday um, where I I coached the the CEO and um, so there's like 100 employees and he and his director of operations are in my mask free program so they each have a mask free sponsor and they're working the mask free program and so their whole team took the assessment and he sent me a, a Marco Polo. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but he sent me a message and he was like, uh, so I don't, he's like, I don't get this. Missy and I, the only two people in your program, we have the lowest authenticity percentage versus all of our employees. What the heck is going on? And I was like, no, dude, that's actually a great sign. Because what happens is when you start doing this work, your authenticity percentage goes down because when you take one mask off, there's like five underneath. 
it takes time wow. to be able to identify all the places. And like, seriously, like for me, uh, someone asked me to sign my book when I was uh, at, at the place getting my haircut. And I, I was scared to tell her I didn't remember her name. Like I wouldn't be aware of that back in the day. I would just like not even think about it, but you start to become aware of this. So his percentage went down. And so um, one of the things that we are looking for is how do we track your authenticity percentage over time? You go down. And so to your extent, to what you said on the 360, one of the coolest things is when I told him, he's like, so how do I help them? And I said, don't manage down, share your experience. That's what 12 step sponsors do. That's mm -hmm. what leaders in the mastery program do. Share your experience. So one thing that would be interesting is if the leader did a 360 on their own masks, mm -hmm. identified the different situations, like a few moments where they're like, this is where I wore that mask and this was the impact. And then they share that with their team and ask them to do their own 360 using the assessment or whatever and talk about it. And then once that has happened and you've created a space where everybody's using the same language and talking about the masks, I've seen people where they can actually call out their boss's boss and be like, well, you're just wearing the mask of, whole, of avoiding difficult conversations because it's just like the Enneagram or, or anything else. You're, you're creating a language that makes it safe to have the hard conversations and say the hard Absolutely. things. And now you're going to get that 360 effect, but you're going to get it real time because like we can't help but talk in the language of these four masks at my company and at this guy's company, it's how he's, it's the lens through how he's talking about it. And it's not threatening anything that they're doing. They still have 360s. They still have, you know, their management systems, the review process. And all they do is they just integrate this in some way into how they talk about the things. Like we talk a lot about strategy and execution, but we don't talk a lot about the things that we don't talk about that holds back strategy and execution. This gives us a language to do that. Absolutely. What a simple mask that one was. You mentioned about, you know, forgetting names. I'm terrible, right? I, I, I used to be pretty good at it. I feel like I'm really bad at it nowadays. And, uh, and I'm always embarrassed after somebody, I met somebody a few times and then I, I forgot their name, right? I'm embarrassed to ask because I should yep. expect another name. And I feel, uh, I feel like I've let them down if I'm asking them when they know my name well, right? Um, so, so yeah, that, that is a mask that I wear often. So I, I've got to, I've got to be bold enough to say, I, I'm a dumbass. It takes me seven or eight times for, for me to meet you and, and talk to you before I remember your name. So please tell me your name again, right? I mean, somehow, I guess you, you got to be, uh, you got to make it fun, uh, tra transparent and fun because otherwise it's, hey, you know, if it can't be, it can't be, hey, I forgot, I forgot your name. What's your, you know, you meet them, you know, what's your name again? What's your name? That doesn't work out so well. I mean, no. that, that's, in my opinion, it's an arrogant man. And if you're, if you're in a hurry, that might be how you say it, right? Not, not intending to be arrogant, but. But again, I, I think there's a way to probably say that to make it fun. And, and but the way you said it, the way you said it would endear you because the thing is, is that in the last 25 years, human beings are going through unprecedented information explosion. And as a result, we literally can't remember almost anything because we have just too much information. So everybody's struggling to remember everybody's names because of social networks and all this. Thank yeah. you, by the way, um, Robbie and LinkedIn. Yeah. I now have so many yeah. names in my head. But, right. So the cool thing is, is that if you do that, and so like I'll, I, I do the same thing. I'll literally just go, hey, I, uh, I'm a recovering drug addict. I did a lot of drugs. I don't remember names. What's your name again? And they'll be like, oh, I struggle to do to, to I struggle to remember some people's names, too. I was like, did you do a lot of drugs? And I'm like, nope. And then I feel totally alone. But now we're totally aligned on the name thing. And it's all good. There you go. I like it.
I a lot like of people it. So are struggling I, with that. I'm going to work on that one because I need that in a big way. So that, that's perfect. And it's easy for me to call myself out as a dumbest, as a dumbass. So it's, uh, I guess got to, you know, figure out how I say that, but that's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to use that Robbie. Make sure you uh, watch me on that one, Robbie. See if I'm, I'm doing well with it. Um, yeah, okay, so what, when you, when you look at your not the nonprofit, so is, is this is the nonprofit basically when it, when it comes to uh, really working with entrepreneurs and, and making them better? Uh, actually, no. So the, so the nonprofit, so remember how I told you about how I went to my team and said I needed a mentor and they went to yeah. a nonprofit that helped entrepreneurs. So yeah. that nonprofit, um, after I sold my company was looking for its third CEO and I, I was not looking for a job, but I, I, I was like so focused on giving back that they came and asked me if I would be interested in leading it. And that would make me the first entrepreneur that had been through that nonprofit that would lead it. And so I had this like um, Jim Harbaugh going back to Michigan moment where I was like, um, I can go back and really help something that really helped me. And so, and, and that's why I really also appreciate Robbie, what you said about, um, D, uh, I really like DIB. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's known different ways, but diversity, equity, and inclusion work was a really big part of what we did at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. So the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, when I walked through the door, was supposed to be the front door for entrepreneurs in the city of Nashville because Nashville knew that it was way behind in supporting entrepreneurs. And so they built this resource and it launched in 2009 um, or two, early 2010. I walked in there the first month they were open asking for help. And the really cool thing is, is that they, they did what, what a 12 step program does. They surrounded me with a sponsor, a mentor. They gave me a process learning how to be a good entrepreneur and do the things and whatever. And they gave me a society like other entrepreneurs that were on the path. And, and so when they asked me if I wanted to, if I was interested in interviewing to be a CEO, I, I said, yes. And then, you know, we tripled the number of entrepreneurs that we serve a year when we were there. And one of the most interesting things I got into was diversity, equity, inclusion work and really understand how you do. There's a lot of people doing entrepreneurship ecosystem building that aren't actually operating with a level of maturity that most entrepreneurs use to run a business. Um, they just like open up a co-working space and go, I'm creating a space for entrepreneurs, but to build truly effective entrepreneurship ecosystems requires a level of contemplation that you have when you're building a business plan for a LinkedIn and Amazon or whatever, because you have to create a marketplace for resources that people can efficiently and effectively um, access. And in Nashville, Tennessee, and in all ecosystems right now, entrepreneurs um, don't know where all the resources are. They like, they literally don't know. I love it. So, so we, so we have a thing. So I want to, I want to maybe offline share some, some of the, uh, what we're doing and what you're doing. Cause I, cause I think, you know, so we have a thing called true mentors. We have two nonprofits that, that we found my, my, our, my family, Cheryl, my wife and I, and, and our team have founded. And one is our, just the Ray Banger foundation where we, we invest in, in causes we believe in uh, that serve the communities we serve. And, and it's uh, you know, veterans, it's uh, elderly and it's children mostly. Um, but anyway, a lot of a lot of fun things we do with that, and, and it's really a blast to be able to make an impact in these communities. Okay, now the next thing we did, though, I, I, my my passion is entrepreneurship and sharing that. That's the reason I do this podcast. I want I want great stories for people like us, um, younger or older or older than us, right? That, that can listen to them and say, man, you know, it's time for me to go go you know go after it and start my business. I, I I've listened to enough of this stuff. I I kind of get it. Or a young person, and there's no doubt in my mind if I was. Uh, if I'm Robbie's age and I'm listening to the people that we're able to, we're blessed to be able to be in front of uh, with our podcast, then uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind I would be way ahead of where I'm at today. Not, not that I care to be any further ahead financially, but 
to be able to make more impact probably if yeah. I had had these minds in front of me at a younger age, right? And so uh, I want I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to supply that because I think our country is, is is our country's success is built on entrepreneurship, just like Israel's has been, uh, and, and our country's future. And our I look at our state and our, our community we live in. If we can be stronger as entrepreneurs, innovating innovating and creating things uh, the rest of the world can use and take advantage of, we're going to bring back um, oppor- job opportunities and, 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 and financial opportunities to everybody around us. So I think it's, I think it's just so important for our, for, our, for our country to continue to understand the value of free enterprise system and the, and the value of entrepreneurship and innovation uh, to that, right? So, so now, now I go back to what I, I've got something I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm teaming up with this group that's um, black leaders, black CEOs and presidents of companies in the Chicagoland area. Um, it's called uh, BLC. It's uh, Business Leadership Chicago. And then my YPO network and a lot of my friends that, uh, that, that I've, I've gained through business and YPO and, and actually EO. I've got a lot of friends. My son was in EO and a lot of friends in EO too. So, so I, I believe that together we can, we can solve a problem. Right now my friends are on the board of this black leadership organization we, I just mentioned. I've got three friends on this board that are awesome, awesome people. And, and, uh, and so we're going back and forth and, and they're saying, hey, we need more work. We need more business from your, your larger business group and YPO and your friends that are you know, multi-billion or multi-hundred million dollar businesses. And, and I said, hey, you know what? I agree with you that that can be, that can be had, but it can't be had without, a, without a building a relationship and trust first. And I said, so we've got a big issue in, in the city of Chicago. And, and we all know what that is. In the urban environment in Chicago, we've got so many crazy murders going on right now. It's sickening, right? And, and we have an opportunity. In my opinion, if, 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 if uh, BLC and, and my YPO network and my friends in, 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 uh, in leadership in our marketplace can get together, a lot of smart minds, a lot, a lot of minds and scaling minds can get together to help solve the problem in that, in that urban community by creating hope, creating hope, jobs, and opportunities, right? So uh, internships as well. Uh, I'm confident that if I put 100 CEOs together, and I know I can do that uh, in the marketplace, we're talking – we're talking uh, 10,000, 20,000 jobs that we hire a year between these, these hundred, probably 20,000 a year, average of 200 a piece. Um, so if that's the case, what could we do to create a difference to, to, to give hope and opportunity to those, to those individuals, kids and adults in these communities that want it, right? Um, kids that they go to college and they don't even, they, they don't, you know, 40%, 50% don't even get a degree, right? And that's not just this urban environment. That's like everywhere now, right? Uh, but, but either way, kids that aren't going to college, that don't see opportunity, that we could put in great op- job opportunities within three, four years, have more real-world experience and more value in three, four years than a kid coming out of college. I'm very confident of that, right? So I believe that these two groups could come together, forget about giving business and giving work and opportunity business to business, right? That'll happen. That'll happen with opportunity. That'll happen with relationship, growth, and trust. And so, so my thing with these guys, let's build this, 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 this group, this, this organization that can serve the urban environment with great minds and, and, and entrepreneurship and scaling business, right? And, 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 and by the way, lots of job opportunities. And with that, we can, we, can, we, can, we can create a difference in the community and create relations of trust where we're going to do business with each other, right? You're just going to. Because once you have, once you once you work on something together with other other leaders, and you find out what what you know the culture of quality that in, in many of these businesses, you're gonna say, man, I, I got, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce you to ten people that I know trust me, they'll trust you, right? So 
I, I believe that if that model is built the right way, forget about government help, forget about all the gar other garbage. I believe private industry and entrepreneurs can solve a problem that the government's not solving right now in every market. So when I say this, I've talked to my friend who's a CEO of YPO. I said, Scott, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to build this thing, and I'm coming to you, and I'm saying, you're, you, you, if it works, you're, you're, I want you to promote this thing across the globe, and, and every major city in the country, the YPOers and EOers can, can participate, right? And, and, I, and it'd be a lot of fun to, to do that. But your, your whole program matches with this perfectly, right? Because how we, how we mentor is key. And, and, we, and we know this you know, through, through YPO, EO, all the things you and I have been a part of. You know, there, there's a terrible way to mentor that I've been part of in the past. I've been, I've been the victim. I've been, not, I've been guilty as the guilty party thinking I'm mentoring someone. I tell them what the hell to do, right? You got to do this. You got to do that, right? Terrible way to mentor. And I've been mentored that way too. So you're obligated. You feel obligated to do what that mentor asks. And it's not always right compared to simply sharing experiences, right? Good and bad, being authentic, as you mentioned, and, and really making a difference in growing somebody's uh, mind in a different way. So, so I, I've, I've had a lot of fun mentoring uh, other people outside my businesses through, through True Mentors and actually YPO as well. And it's so much fun to do that. When you can see somebody you know, do, do some things that are uh, a little different than they would have done otherwise and they have success only because they're, they, they've shared, you share experience with them that, that, that brought a different uh, way of doing things in, uh, to them, right? So, so mentorship is the best. If you can do it as, you grow, uh, as we grow older and heck, if you're younger like you are doing, that's even better. So. Uh, I, I appreciate it. So offline, I want to talk to you about that deeper. And as I go further and, and, and build this relate these relationships between these these few you know, groups of leaders in the Chicago market, and uh, and we could take it to Nashville. You could take it anywhere. It'd be a lot of fun. And your and your program could be a, a, a intricate part of it. Dude, I would love to. That sounds great. Cool. All right, I'm in on that. Um, okay, so. Uh, what, what's your what's your next thing? What what, what are you going to do now? Are you going to stay? At, you're going to do a little nonprofit, a little little entrepreneurship, a little nonprofit going forward. Um, what what do you want to be ten years from now? What do you, what, do you, what do you think you're going to be in ten years? So um, when my book came out, so my book came out May 26th of this year, and um, it talks about the mastery program and living and leading as a mastery leader, being recovering from mask addiction and actually applying the mastery program on a daily basis, one minute a day in your life. And so when we launched the book, we launched the mastery program. And so uh, with no press or marketing, because thanks to the pandemic, <laughs> there wasn't any available. Um, we, in the last six or seven weeks, we went from like 40 people uh, registered for this to like 440 people. Whoa. And you know, there's only 60 people because uh, always people always give you these vanity metrics, right? There's 440 people that are registered for our program, but um, there are uh, 60 people that are actively working the program with a mastery sponsor right now, something like that. And so the goal is to grow this to where um, we talk about essentially in two to five years to get to 25,000 liters. We think that if we can get to 25,000 leaders um, practicing the mask-free program on a daily basis and becoming a mask-free sponsor themselves for other people to show them how to do it and start to infiltrate organizations with this method for creating authentic leadership, um, we think that from 25,000 leaders, we can get to a million. And from a million, we can actually revolutionize the rules of leadership. Now, 
JFK said when they were talking about going to the, I'm not JFK. I'm not trying to say I'm JFK. But when he said when they were going to the moon, um, he said, this accomplishment may not be, uh, this may not, something like this may not be accomplished in my lifetime, but it's no reason not to start. Um, I, I truly want to create a mask-free world where everybody practices rigorous authenticity and you aren't allowed to be a leader unless you do. Um, I don't know if we'll ever create that world. We still have a world full of drug addicts using alcohol and drugs, but we also have millions of addicts all around the world in recovery. And I want to create the equivalent for mask-free leadership. And that's like my sole focus. So structure-wise, will I create like a nonprofit to help structure it appropriately? Um, I, I might actually, when we talk, I might actually pick your brain a little bit. Oh God, I hate it when people say pick your brain. Um, I, I don't mean that. I mean, I mean, we'll grab coffee. Oh God, no, I don't mean that either. Um, <laughs> no, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but I, I don't know exactly the best way to structure it as I, as I grow it because I wouldn't want to be encumbered. But, um, but that's the goal is to get to 250 leaders by the end of the year, 25,000 that are actively working the program and then 25,000 in two to five years. And then a million. I don't actually have a number on that because I know it's completely a guess. But the BHAG, if we were to honor Vern Harnish, would be um, in 25 years, a million liters. Uh, that'd be spectacular. And, and Vern, I love Vern, Vern Harnish. I've heard him speak and read, read some of his books. He's, he's, he's something else. Um, okay, so you're, you bounce back and forth in the political thing here, JFK, right? Politics. This could be a, this could be a product that's, that's, uh, that's delivered to politicians once you prove they can work, right? If you, if you can pick out authentic politicians that kick ass and do great, right? You can use them as a model and uh, be kind of fun and go, to go in that world too and create an element of uh, authenticity there and, and, and hopefully transparency and, and, and honesty there. Be, be amazing, right? So then there, there you can really make a difference. After this, you accomplish this, then I'm going to partner with you. We're going to go in the political world and, and go after that. I, I follow politics a little bit. I'm involved a little bit bunch of different stuff politically um and when you say what you're saying right one thing i say that's uh that's kind of a uh a blocker to this right in my opinion in your in your success is uh is is my opinion is the political correctness of today right i'm, I'm always bothered by the by the political correct uh driven world that we have today because i know for in my in, in my life um it's those people that are just direct and honest that that i appreciate because whether I like who they are or not, hey, I'm going to know who they are, and I can choose whether I like them or not, compared to the mask that, that people put on a consistent basis to protect themselves from uh, the liability of, of uh, not being politically correct, right? Whether it's loss of jobs, a loss of uh, opportunity, loss of whatever. Uh, and, and so for me, I would love to see this, you know, our, our – our culture and our and our war and our country be less politically correct and 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 to do what you're saying you really you really kind of have to be almost right especially in one-on-one -on -one relationships and stuff um and, I, and 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 so i you know if we can knock out you know 80 percent of this politically correct uh, driven world it'd be a beautiful thing and your program would do that too i think uh you're more optimistic than i am on changing politicians so i i, I will i will follow your lead but here's here's the way i reconcile it in my mind most politicians i don't know if this is true my observation is that most politicians start in some other leadership position before they do politics like you have the people that start when they're like 18 and they do all that kind of stuff you have a lot of people that are successful in business they make that transition and so if we can, from business, from a business perspective, create better business leaders, better organizational leaders that are using this way of life, and then they start to progress and create 
first of all, within their companies, a culture where it's actually accepted and, prefer and preferred that you live and lead without a mask. Now you're having impact where you're socializing people to who are the future voters to actually value and appreciate this and understand that there's a trade-off. You will see a candidate that looks weaker. You will. But the trade-off is, is that you can trust them and you can mm -hmm. watch how they lead themselves. And so if they do that within their own, own organizations where they have a captive audience, change their values so they, they can change their life, and then they go start to pursue office long-term. I see how we can get there. So I'm trying to get there with you, Gary. I still feel a little pessimistic, but I'm going to let you lead us in that area. Okay. You I'm got it. Well, hey, here's, here's where you got to go with that, Mike. We got to go to law firms because 80% of our, I don't know the exact number, but a majority of our politicians didn't come from le real leadership positions, actually. Majority have come from legal, legal from from uh, as lawyers and um, uh, you know finance uh, leaders and 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 uh, lawyers. That I'm seeing the most of right, and so in my opinion, they haven't had to lead really as much as an actual leader in in business. So we got to get to the lawyers first. We get this program to them, and then we got it. So what are you doing at 2 p.m. Central? Because I'm doing a speaking engagement for like a thousand law leaders of law firms. Like seriously, awesome. I'm not kidding you. And I did not think of this. Like it's, so it's uh, through a company called Crisp Video um, and they do marketing for law firms. And so I'm doing this like uh, a speaking engagement for all these leaders of law firms. And my dad was a lawyer and I, and I wanted to be a lawyer. So I understand that lawyers uh, have a disproportionate propensity for alcoholism. So uh -huh. like I am excited to carry this message and to like yeah. try to hide, but I never thought about that being the leverage point for future politicians. So like now I just got like 25% more pumped about doing this. Look at, Hey, look it up because again, I'm, I'm from my scene, the majority of politicians come from the background of law. And, and yeah, right. they, they, they've never had to lead a lot of people. And I think that's a, that's a, a deficit, in my opinion, to what we're talking about. So yeah, you, you, can, be the, you can be a difference maker, dude. That's awesome. I, of course, I, they, have I, to li they have to listen to me. And like, I'm just I think joke. they will. We'll you got a captivating story. Anybody's going to listen to your story, man. It's awesome. I appreciate that. Well, hey, um, I, I, Robbie, you got anything else for, this, for our, our guy? Mike here, man, he's... Uh, He's awesome. It's a great, uh, it's, it's a great one that uh, people are going to get a lot out of. Yeah. I think in the spirit of authenticity, I, I'm curious to understand what sort of pushback or, or failures have you experienced? Maybe, maybe the pushback from specific individuals who have gone through the mass free program or, or maybe it's just pushback in general of interest in the mass free program. No, that's, I, uh, that's a great question. And one of the things that I learned early on was my team and my marketing firm, um, they were scared when I wanted to talk about how I was failing at being authentic. Um, and I was like, guys, <laughs> if I'm not real about that, then all of this is bullshit. So yeah. because personal, it's a personal brand model and personal brands like Tony Robbins doesn't get up on stage and say, here's where I'm struggling. He says, here's how I'm going to fix you. And so I want to get up on stage and say, here's where I'm struggling. And like, people aren't going to listen or follow. I'm like, I don't think that's true. Um, so uh, it, it's been, there have been moments where I failed myself where uh, one time I was doing a bunch of social media videos and my wife is like the COO for our company and we got done and she's like, so we're going to have to do that all again. And I was, I was like, why? And she's like, because you weren't being authentic. She's like, you were trying to be Michael Brodyweight, who you think Michael Brodyweight will be in terms of being accepted. Um, and that was like interesting. 
Uh, pushback. I learned very early on that when I get hired to do a workshop, which I don't do as much of anymore, but when I get hired to do a workshop by a leader that loves what I'm doing and they bring me to their team of 500 people, I get like 10% of the people that are like jumping out of their chair wanting to do it. And I get 25% of people sitting like this with their arms crossed saying, hell no, like what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> and, and you know, they're just like, you, you ask them like what they're struggling with and they're like nothing. And it's just like the job interview all over again. And so I, I, I realized that um, Brene Brown actually talks about this in The Gifts of Imperfection. She talks about how she did a speaking engagement where there was a guy in the front row with his arms crossed and she tried to convince him instead of lift up the people that were going to hear what she had to say. And that's like the classic rules. Like don't focus on your non-customer, focus on your customer. But for some reason, when you're trying to carry a message, you, you want the whole audience to get it. And this is not a message that everybody gets. Half of the time, I trigger somebody into wearing more masks. I've done podcasts with hosts that pr profess to be authentic. And then you can tell that they are just wearing a mask and really uncomfortable with what I'm saying. And so I've had to accept that I'm going to feel stupid or like what I'm saying doesn't matter about half the time because this is something that really triggers people. Um, another interesting loss that I had was when the pandemic hit, um, I started getting messages saying, uh, you're killing people, Michael, because I was saying mask free and there were people that believe that you should be wearing a physical mask in the pandemic. And I don't want to get into the politics of all that. I don't care. But I was like, no, dude, like I'm talking about the figurative mask. But I literally had people that were looking at my content, thinking that I was jumping headfirst into this whole like political thing. And so my PR team and my marketing firm were like, we got to stop saying mask free. We got to stop saying it because people don't understand. I was like, no, dude, like I already wrote the book. This is what I believe in and I'll explain it. But like we, I, I, yeah, I, did, I disagree. Yeah, I disagree. I think it's awesome that right now it's a great time to have that, that as your tag. And, and as we, as I mark, when I throw this on my LinkedIn, it's going to be uh, throw away that mask. Right. And then it's going to be your thing. Right. Because I actually you know, I, I have a different opinion on that. Right. I've, I've studied this. I'm on a task force right now about all the subjects. So Robbie's heard it before, but I, I don't agree with a lot that's going on right now. And I think the mass thing is another example of, of uh, you know, something I, I don't I don't agree with right now. But either way, um, in total, in totality, I don't agree with it anyway. But um, I'm going to use this now because I think it gets more attention than, than otherwise. Right, Robbie? Yeah, hundred percent. As I say, any publicity is good publicity. Like, you start yeah. getting out. It is. It is. It's just you know I always have this fear of being misunderstood, and um, and so I was on like some uh, TV show with the guy that like literally could not admit a weakness at all, and it was just he was so threatened by what I was talking about, and he thought I was so weak because I was talking about my you know fears and all that kind of stuff, and and so I have those moments. At the same time, though. I'll have these, like, um, one of my favorite people that believe in this, that like endorsed the book is the leader for global marketing at Google. And she was like, oh my God, cause like Google's really big on trying to drive psychological safety internally in terms of their culture. They're trying to reclaim their culture. And, and she really, I went and got to spend time with her team and, and, and she really believed in, in what we were doing. And it showed because when we did the process, she reached deeper and got more vulnerable than her people did. She set the tone for the whole thing. Simon Sinek says, great lead leaders eat last, while authentic leaders go first. And so she did that. And so like, basically to answer your question, there are, 
I actually have on like some of my action cards for um, holding back my unique perspective. My uncomfortable work is to collect haters. That's my, that's my uncomfortable work. Mm-hmm. And so like I had some guy on one of my videos say that I was a sociopath and I was like, okay, collected my hater. Um, I don't <laughs> think I'm a sociopath, but I'm fairly certain that if I was, I wouldn't think that I am. So I don't even know now I'm, I'm all confused, but I've just had to be willing to essentially eat my own dog food and it's easy to teach hard to do. Um, that's why I believe so much in needing to do all this work. But there, there have been a number of times where people on my team, my director of operations called me out. She's like, you know what, when this pandemic hit for two weeks, you didn't tell me that you didn't know what you're going to do. I wish that you had told me. And I was like, you know what? I was hiding a weakness. Um, I was hiding a weakness. Thank you for sharing that. And so from now you're telling me that you would rather that your leader tell you, I don't know, than spend three weeks to figure out what we're going to do. And she said, for what I signed up for, yes. And I said, all right, mm-hmm. I messed up and I will do that differently. Right. Uh, you know, those are some of the, the failures or the weaknesses that we've had. That's a, that's a valuable uh, teammate there, right? It's, that, that calls you out. I love it. That's oh, okay. she's great. She's great. She's, uh, that's what we want. You know, and actually testimony to the fact that mask-free sponsorship is something anyone can do. Um, I am a 17-year clean, uh, recovering drug addict. Uh, I've been building this program as a leader for years. And she is neither of those things, but she is acting as my mastery sponsor because it's about the role and facilitating the process. It's not about having the wisdom and the expertise that you actually deliver. And so she's, you want to talk about crazy, make the person that manages your schedule, your mastery sponsor and work an action card. on I say yes, when I could say no, I get my butt kicked every single week by her. Perfect. Um, And it's great because I've empowered her through this process to do that. It's perfect. You surround yourself with people that are, that are objective, right? And then that challenge you on a daily basis to, to the core values and, and who you are. That's, that's what you need. Uh, that's, that's something else I think this all teaches. So, so thanks a lot, man. I'll tell you what, you're, you're a, you're a cool dude and uh, we're blessed to have you on our episode today. And uh, I want to talk to you more. So I'm going to go a little further in the next couple of weeks on this program. I was telling you about, see how it goes, see if we can get together. And if we do, then I'd love to tap into your, your noggin there. I'm not going to say, uh, uh, you know, pick your brain, okay? Because that's that's just crazy. I can never say that. But uh, <laughs> I'd like to tap into your noggin when we're ready here. So I'll be calling on you if you don't mind. I would be honored, dude. I would absolutely be honored. It's a, this was a blast. Thank you for having me on. And and if there's a if you see enough value in what I'm doing to include in what you're doing, and you're doing some serious stuff, that would be an incredible honor. So I'm grateful for that. La- last, lastly, I would say, um, you know, just just a recommendation for me. Uh, you should, you should be a, um, a, if you're not already a resource partner to YPO, are you? No. Um, do, how do, do I do, do that? Get, okay. Let's get on that. How about, how about, uh, you and I talk here in the next day, I'll, I'll get the answers for you in the next day. I'll have them for you. Let's, let's say by, uh, let, let's say by the end of day tomorrow, let's you and I co- uh, connect and I'll, and I'll have it for you because you, you should be a YPO resource member. Now it's a membership. It's kind of cool. So resources now that they say are, are they, they, that they like the content to, and I know that they will yours. I, I, I believe they will. Um, then you're a member of YPO. You don't have to have the revenues. You have to have the employees, all the other stuff. And now you're not only a member, then you're asked to speak at events across the globe, right? Um, get, you get your name all over the place. So I think that'd be really cool. Dude, that okay? would be freaking awesome, man. Thank you. Like seriously, because yeah. my grandfather was a member of YPO. I have friends that are YPO, but I've never really thought like, okay, how do I become a resource to YPO? 
Yeah, it's different. I'm telling you, it's different now because the resource, they have resource membership now, which is really cool uh, compared to just being a resource where they can pull you here or there. You're a member. You can actually participate and get involved in, the, in, in different, uh, all the different conferences, and there's so much you can do besides just be the resource. So it's really neat. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you that stuff by the end of the day tomorrow. If I don't, I'm a liar, and I'm not a liar. Okay, cool. I'll send you my email in the chat because I don't even know if you have it. Awesome. Well, give me your cell phone number too. I know you don't want to share that with a, with a creepy guy like me, but give me, give me that too, right? Oh, trust me. As a recovering drug addict, I've shared my number with creepier, dude. Far <laughs> creepier. That's awesome. Hey, oh, uh, yo, I gotta t- I'll tell you one quick story. I, okay, we're going to have this guy on eventually, but you know the name Rod Blagojevich? What's the name again? Rod Blagojevich, the, the past governor of Illinois. No. Okay, he was the governor that went to jail in Illinois, and uh, Trump just uh, pardoned him about four months ago. Remember, you, you hear about any of that? So anyway, That's ringing Rod, the bell. Rod, is, uh, Rod uh, came out to my golf club, him and his family, his wife, Pat, and the kids, and, and uh, took golf lessons, and they're, they're contemplating joining our club. And, uh, and they had dinner at my house with my wife and I and, and my kids. And uh, okay, I went out on you for a second there. But they had dinner with uh, Rod and Patty and the kids, uh, uh, you know, this, this uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, this guy, I, I didn't, I've never known him before, right? I just just got to know him over a phone call and then coming out and spend some time with him, look him up. But this guy is a character. He, uh, in, in, he got he got 14 years of, of uh, time for uh, for um, talking about selling a seat, the Obama seat. So when that oh, happened, yeah, Illinois, yeah, Obama yeah, yeah. was. Okay, so you got 14 years, and anybody would tell you that's crazy. There's no reason she got more than, you know, she got very little time, if any, but a couple of years maybe at the most. And uh, you got 14 years, and, and seven and a half years later, he gets pardoned by Trump. Um, and it's a long story, but it's a great story. Uh, there's a uh, there's a movie, not a movie, but a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what, what do you call it? The story. Documentary. Documentary on it, right? I don't watch documentaries too often. I should, but anyway, documentary is really good. Anyway, so he's at my house. And, and talk about giving away cell numbers. He's giving people in prison his, his wife Patty's cell number as they get out. And he goes, you need anything, you call Patty. She'll take you. She'll take, we'll take care of you, right? My, my family will take care of you. If you need anything at all, you need food, you need this and that, right? And so Patty said, you know, it's all really nice. I got a, I got a call from, from a, you know, a bank robber. You know, I got a call from this. She's mainly people. And, and, and then and Rod then goes into, you know, who these people are and how, how he knows. They're really good people, right? They went to prison, but they're good people, right? And uh, high character. And, uh, and, and so he goes, yeah, but she goes, yeah, but you didn't have to have the murderer call me. And, 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 and she's really certain. And, and Rod goes, come on, honey. It was, it was, it was second degree manslaughter. And, <laughs> and so, but he was given. He was giving these people that he trusted in prison when they get out. He's giving hey, you call my wife, and, and we'll we'll if we can help you out in any way, we will. If you need anything, please call my wife. And so those people are calling his wife for, for help. And and uh, this, the stories are funny as can be. It's prison stories because he's. You want to talk uh, about again, giving people work and surrendering the outcome? How about uh, having, that? Right? Having all yeah, those I people mean, call your wife. That that's that's surrendering the outcome and doing comfortable work. Well, and how about how about being the governor of a state, right? That you know, at a, you know, pretty pretty high level in politics, of course, right? And then being a prisoner, right? And then and think about that how people thought of him initially. These prisoners mm. thought of him as this high fluting guy. That and it wasn't it wasn't a, a golf course prison, right? This is a real prison. And uh, 
he got to be friends with everybody. And when he ended up leaving, he felt he felt bad leaving so many people behind that he fell in love with his friends, right? So uh, it's it's he's gonna have, it'll be a movie on it. It'd be great. But anyway, we're gonna get him on the show. But you remind me of that about giving your number out. I do the same thing. I give my number to anybody that wants him. Like, hey, you want you want my number? That, you know, it's still today. It's like, oh, that's cool, man. It's that's like a, a compliment. You want my number, right? So I give my number to everybody and anybody and, and uh, answer calls to anybody. And, and I, I think that overall works out pretty well. Once in a while, you get, you get somebody that that's, uh, you know, spends, wants to spend a lot of your time that you might not have. But overall, I think it's a good thing. So, all right. Hey, well, awesome having you on. You and I are going to talk in the next day. And then uh, beyond that, hopefully we can be part of solving that other problem we talked about. Okay. Yeah, dude. I appreciate it. I put my information in the chat and it was an honor and I'm grateful for all the work that you're doing. Robbie, it was great to meet you too, dude. Even if you like the Packers, yeah. I don't care what everybody says about you. You're a good guy. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mike. Appreciate <laughs> it. All right. Until next time on Dish Sticker CEO. See ya. All right. Bye. Thanks, man. All right. Cheers, Mike. Good luck this bye. afternoon, man. Thanks, dude. Going to change some lawyers' lives. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. We're blessed to build a business in America where soldiers fight for our freedom every day. Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck rolling down. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans, then I became the CEO man.